I don't know that I know what the meaning of life is, but it seems to me it's got a lot to do with the idea of turning one, one's own pains into good things for others. If you can do that, you know, meaning of life cannot be too far away from that, I don't think, regardless of what kind of philosophical or religious or whatever perspective one has. I think that is something that is part of the inner core of how we are built as humans. And so second phase of my career taught me, well, it's not about me, it's not about career, it's not about you know beating people in races, it's about helping those that are in the greatest needs. And if you have tools in hand that they can be helpful, I'll tell you something, buddy, it's your freaking responsibility to do that. It's an ethical imperative. You cannot run away from that. And I don't care if it's hard, if you're gonna fail, if you don't know what's gonna happen, if we are gonna laugh at you because you're bringing crazy tools to the fight. I don't care. If you believe it, if you suspect, you're never gonna know for sure. But if you suspect that what you have could be helpful, it's your duty to do it. And that changes life completely. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm John Price, your host. The first song you heard, Mountain, is uh, is from a friend of mine, a band called Alan. The, the band is Alan, and the album is The Universal Answer is Both. And I learned yesterday that Chris Hardy, the uh, creator of the band, uh, certainly the lead singer, died. And so I was thinking about a way to kind of honor his memory and of course, music came to mind because what better way to, I think, what better way to connect with uh, musicians and people that produce you know, creative works than through those works, through the, through the songs they sing and the music they play. So the mountain is the first track, and you can check the liner notes for a link to the album. I recommend you do. At the end of the episode, you'll hear a full song. You'll hear Chris's voice. So it's um, it's a sad day, but it's also um, that's how I would want to be remembered through music. Thinking about you, Chris. So today is a is a really um, God. I don't want to use the word exciting. I want to say enriching conversation, but it's important to me because it's it's like uh, dipping your toe in a river that's been flowing for a while. Dr. Mauro Ferrari is the participant today, and we've now, as, a, as far as the past three, four months, been involved in a couple of projects together, and the, the one that we talk about at the beginning of the episode is with the Houston Grand Opera. Uh, Mauro had put together this group of folks uh, that involved science and mysticism and mathematics and mental health. Uh, it was basically a bunch of artists who are kind of 
seeking to inspire the audience from their own uh, creative modes, modalities. And so the conversation began in Morrow's office. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought I was going to meet a guy at the <laughs> Methodist hospital. And, um, and we, we hit it off really quickly, bonded over Dante. And uh, I, I joined the ranks of this group that ended up performing two weeks ago at Match Theater in Houston. And I recorded this episode the Friday before. This was on a Monday night. And it was as my partner in crime, Rodney Waters, um, said, he said, it's like a surrealist talent show. And it really ended up being that way. So it was kind of a wild experience. And one person in particular was uh, was Jeff Greipel. He was there. And many others who've been on this uh, podcast. Alejandro Chaul, Juanita Rasmus, Rodney Waters. And I'm going to have more folks to interview as a result of that experience that I'm very thankful for. So I'm excited to bring you tomorrow. Uh, the first thing I want to say is this: these, these conversations last... Uh, the last episode with Dr. Stuart Kaufman and certainly this one with Dr. Mauro Ferrari really represent a conversation between humanities and sciences. Jeff Kripal sent me a message the other day about an article that was out on um, a Rice University website, essentially singing his praises for his book, The Flip. And I want to sing the praises of Bellevue Literary Press because what they do is try to get the humanities and the sciences into conversation with each other, and The Flip certainly does that. The reason I say this is because in the episode with Dr. Stuart Kaufman, I noted a bias that I have and, and in a sense, a contempt, kind of a, a struggle around sciences because my lane has been the humanities. And, of course, I hope you understand this, this project really represents my attempt to bridge that gap, at least in my own way. So I, I, I think, as Rodney noted um, a few days later after listening to it, it's not really contempt with sciences. It's contempt with fundamentalism and with reductionism. And it just so happens that part of the kind of balancing act that my kind of lane tends to do is to keep the sciences from falling into the pit of reductionism, which we can. It's a human tendency. I don't care if you're in the humanities or the sciences. We can tend to fall into that space. So it really is that, that I think part of my mission is to explore and push up against fundamentalism and reductionism. So I wanted to clarify that. I think it's important. Let's get to Dr. Mara Ferrari. I'm going to introduce him briefly, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> His <laughs> bio sketch um, reads like, uh, you know, uh, 14 lifetimes. So I'm going to be brief. Um, he's currently the president-designate of the European Research Council of the European Union. He was just elected th to this office. He's the director of Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals, the executive vice president for strategic, strategic initiatives and community partnerships, and a professor at the University of St. Thomas, an advisor at the Houston Methodist Hospital and Research Institute. He has been, from 2003 to 5, the National Cancer Institute special expert on nanomedicine. Uh, from 2006 to 10, University of Texas Medical School, Houston, and MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's a full professor with tenure and endowed chair in the internal medicine experimental therapeutics in biomedical engineering and nanomedicine. 2010 to 19, he's Houston Methodist Hospital and Research Institute. He's a full professor with a presidential endowed chair. He's the president and the CEO of the Research Institute and the executive vice president of the Houston Methodist Hospital, along with the uh, chief commercialization officer. Uh, he's published over 500 publications, 
and he's as far as his research funding over 120 million career total as principal investigator including three center grants from the National Institute uh, National Cancer Cancer Institute and multiple single investigator grants from the NIH a ton of stuff I could go on and on and on and would continue to be impressed with each um, what's after each comma <laughs> Uh, but also the good stuff is that um, Leela, my wife and I, one time went out and saw Morrow's Blues Band play. So not only is he a hardcore a scientist, mathematician, engineer, medical doctor, <laughs> he's also a, an amazing saxophone player who's played in, uh, in one of the performances that Rodney and I uh, put on at the Young Center where Leela sang and Morrow played the sax for a song. So it's a deep pleasure to, to get to know him in this way, and I'm excited to, uh, to bring you this episode today. So Modern Nations does the theme music for the podcast. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. Thesacredspeaks.com is this website. And I urge you to uh, hang out at the end of the episode and listen to the song by Alan. Uh, I've been listening to their album... On my way home yesterday, I listened to the whole album, and it's uh, it's wonderful. So, Chris, we'll all miss you. It's nice to relive all the memories from <laughs> 20 years ago, playing shows together and uh, shows and shenanigans. So, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Man, it's good to have you here. It's a delight. Thank you so much for having me. What the honor. Yeah, we've got a we've got a cool event that I'm sure we'll I'll, I'll talk about in the introduction coming up. Cool. But it's, it's really neat sitting down with you before we get to this uh, huh. crazy, wacky, fun event you put together. Yeah, probably not going to want to talk to me afterwards. I'm always huh. going to want to huh. talk huh. to you. Huh. So, um, you know, the, when I first proposed the idea of you and I talking in this format, you said, I asked you what you'd want to talk about, and you mentioned the emotions of math. And of course, I got hooked in that. Not, I mean, primarily because I probably slept a little too much in mathematics. And I, I, um, I, I interviewed a guy a couple weeks back named Dr. Stuart Kaufman, and I had to share with him my bias as somebody who's really been raised in the humanities, that when it comes to the sciences, certainly mathematics, anything involving, um, you know, quantitative measurement, I I don't speak that language as well. So to to bring together these two, seem, from my perspective, seeming mm. these concepts that seem to be a bit in opposition to each other, mm. emotions and math, mm. I'm hooked, man. So <laughs> you, uh, you 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 take us through here, and I'll, I'll certainly ask questions as we go, but I'm. Uh, I'm excited to find out more. Happy to talk to you about that. And uh, well, it is true for sure that when people think about math, uh, most people think about the running calculations and doing boring stuff like that, uh, which is uh, can be, of course, boring, intimidating. And if you make a mistake, you pay the price. So the emotion there is something between, uh, you know, annoyance, fear, anxiety. So that's not the good emotions or the deep emotions that I want to talk about. Right. And just to clarify, of course, uh, I'm not a professional mathematician. I never was a professional mathematician. 
you know, when I thought I was, <laughs> and nobody would help me. I mean, for a little while of my career, I actually spent time focusing on the math side of things, and I've kept a mathematics backbone to everything I've done since in other fields, in medicine, in engineering, and I'll talk a little bit about that if, yeah. if you want. But I don't want to give anybody the impression that this is the mathematician speaking. I'm not a mathematician. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of the math world and way of thinking has remained in me, for better or for worse. But uh, but I'm not certainly qualified to speak like a great professional mathematician of any sorts. So, but you know, to me, math is, is fascinating in many different ways because it really isn't doing the calculations and, uh, and taking the percentages and making sure that you do your taxes right. Mm -hmm. Of course, that is part of it and there's nothing wrong with it, even though very few people like that kind of stuff. I think of math uh, as a creative art and uh, of, with its own rules, of course, with the logic backing that, that is, uh, of course, essential. But I think of math as a creative art. And as I've looked, a creative scientist, almost invariably, I find that they gravitate towards a mathematical way of thinking or a mathematical approach to things. Let me give an example. You know, I, that, that in the process of uh, creativity, in the process of creation of that, 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 that artists engage in, there is this fascinating moment that a lot of artists will talk about uh, when they actually see something with the eyes of their mind. Uh, and mm. then the job is to make it happen. Now, you remember that uh, <clears throat> Michelangelo used to say, look, I didn't do anything special. You know, the statue was already inside of the marble block. I just <laughs> took it out. Yeah, which of course, <laughs> but you know, somehow he saw it. Of course, I also met artists that said, look, I start working and the, the, and the art just happens and I just follow it. I'm just the hands that make it happen. It's the art that draws me. I'm not the one that is commanding what comes out. But let's think for a moment about those artists that can actually see it with the eyes of their mind, that they can hear the music that they're going to write before they write it. I mean, there's this notion of envisioning unbelievable how the mind works. You can actually see it or hear it or imagine it. And then the hands put it together, so to speak. Now, math works essentially the same way, the math that I'm talking about. There is this notion of theorem and proof, right? Theorem and proof is how mathematics works. Well, theorem is an idea that you see it with the eyes of your mind that somehow feels right. This notion that somehow feels right is the scary part of creativity. It is the, is this the differentiating step for, for, for an artist. Some artists see it and then the hands can make it. It does the proof, but they see the theorem, metaphorically speaking, before it happens. They, they have these insights, these conjectures, something that magically, and I cannot explain it, inside of them, something resonates right. It says, ha-ha, that's what it's got to be. And then the labor, the hands part of the, of the process, where you actually got to make it happen, it would be like the Michelangelo doing the, 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 the sculpting, that can take weeks, months, years. Mm. 
And as you're going through those years of trying to prove something with rigorous tools, with the power of logic, with the power of knowledge, with the power of prior work that people have done, then do that. That is diligent work. That's where the professionalism comes out and the knowledge and the skills. But the greatness in many cases is in seeing the things that nobody else has been able to see. And you have to be able to go and continue to chisel away at the rock for months, sometimes for years, before you can prove that intuition that you've had or that somebody else had in some cases without knowing for sure that what you saw with the eyes of your mind is actually true. Of course, you can argue that the sculptor is going to get something out of it anyways, right? The painter is going to get something out of it anyways. Well, the mathematician ain't. It is possible that you keep trying to climb that mountain and you're never going to make it to the top. And at the end of the story, years later, all you got is that let me tell you how it felt. Let me give you my journal of my climb that didn't work. So there is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging thing. But the thing that I find fascinating is this vision that pops in people's minds, and they can actually make it happen. That is that is what I one thing I like, and, and of course it's a. It's a process, not that I've experienced it much. I wish I could tell you, yes, when I had this great intuition and the other one, but you know, but I got some glimpses of that and it just feels right. To me, it's kind of like uh, there are times when I play with the blues band that mm -hmm. I play with, you know, with the great Texas Johnny Boy, the great uh, Milton Hopkins, and sometimes in the places where we play, you know, the, the, the spies, the loudspeakers, they're supposed to be playing back to me the music that I'm what I'm playing with my saxophone they are not pointed right or the place is very noisy I can't actually hear what I'm doing but if you pay attention the vibrations the vibrations feel right it's a mechanical feeling and if the mechanical feeling somehow tells you that things are in tune that things are harmonious and then even though you cannot hear yourself if you just feel the mechanical vibrations it works out all right. It's the same thing. There is this moment in brains that is incredible where the neurons are dancing together or whatever it is they're doing, I don't know. <laughs> and it feels right. Yeah. And they are shaking hands and it feels right. And you say, man, given how it felt in my metaphorical gut, whatever that is, I'm going to spend the next five years of my life trying to climb this mountain which may not even exist. <laughs> you spend years of your life climbing a mountain that may be just a figment of your imagination. So there is a lot of emotion there. There is a lot of, uh, uh, there is a lot of insight uh, into you, your own self and how your, your brain works and this feeling of uncertainty and going through darkness and the relation between reality and imagination. Am I right? Am I wrong? Self-doubt, mathematical anxiety shows up in those things. And I think it's a fascinating process. So that's one that I wanted to mention. Mm. There are other parts that I want to mention. So there is this, uh, there is another incredible part of the story that uh, has to do with the proof of the theorem. So you're, so you imagine the theorem is one set of emotions. You try to work on it. 
And then is proof. And proof, you're trying to climb that mountain, you're trying different approaches. You know, I see rock climbers like my daughter Ilaria. They study those potential steps that they need to take up. It is, there is a lot of mental approach to the climbing path that you need to take to make sure that you make it to the top. So it's, uh, it's similar. So you think I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go that way. And it is something that can last again, days, weeks, months, years. And there is a point when you get in the zone. You've been thinking about this damn thing so much that your brain somehow starts working on it by itself. It is not even logical thoughts where you take one step and then another step and then another step, you write it down on paper. Processes start in the brain somehow and they keep on going and then the magical thing happens that people sometimes uh, talk about. I've experienced it only once. I was trying to prove a theorem that had to do with certain materials, the behavior of certain materials. And, uh, and it's been spending perhaps a week or two focusing on that like there is no tomorrow. Couldn't find a way to, to tackle the beast. And one day I woke up and as I was waking up, it was very clear what was the pathway to take. I think musicians feel the same mm-hmm. thing. There is a moment where things come together and those dark neurons figure out a way to do the little things. And then they find a way to filter it through whatever processes so that it shows up in consciousness. And you say, ha ha, but where that has been solved was way below, was deep inside, was in the processes that we cannot normally fathom that are filtered out of conscious thinking. So we think we do the mathematical proof in the conscious thinking part of the brain, but I'm thinking that perhaps the best work is done deep down where nobody can look. This is why I, I can't remember how I heard a percentage. This is going to be wrong, so forgive me. But yeah. I, I heard at some point something like 30% of you know the biggest scientific innovations. People had dreams or hypnagogic moments like in, yeah. the, you know, in that intersection between waking life and sleeping life where that insight, yeah. you know, you're struck by lightning and yeah. all of a sudden... Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And so that's magic. Mm. And uh, I've experienced that only once. And actually, when I when, when I actually, and then I sat down and I wrote it, boom, and it was quick. It's quick enough that it was embarrassing that it had taken me weeks <laughs> to figure out, really? Oh, how stupid am I? So I got to sleep a bit more. I don't know. So but that was one of those great moments. Other stories that have to do with, with, uh, with emotions and math. Uh, of course, there is the feeling of awe sometimes, of awe that has to do with uh, with uh, with things that they are hard to grasp, right? So let me talk about infinities for a moment. Mm. Infinities is a cool topic, and so there is this notion that uh, that I was always fascinated by this notion that. Um, you know, infinities, there are different infinities, bigger infinities, smaller infinities. And let me tell you about those. And and they have to do with things that you and I know and we use every day. So let's think about natural numbers. Okay, zero, one, two, three, four, five. How many of those? Well, infinity. Yeah, you got that one right. All right, and then let's think about uh, integers, positive and negative. So minus two, minus three, plus two, plus three, and all of the other guys, all of their friends. How many of those? Infinity. Yeah. Same infinity as positive numbers. 
Heck, how could that be? It's twice as big, right? It's you get the positives, but you also get the negatives. So it's got to be a bigger infinity. Heck, no. It's the same infinity. Tricky, tricky. <laughs> and you can prove it. You can do the theorem and proof. Theorem, and it's very easy to prove. We're not going to bore you and your listeners with that. But it's very easy. Let me make it worse. Okay, let's think for a moment about fractions, rational numbers. Three-fifths minus one-quarter. All of those, including the, the trivial fractions, which are integers. Okay, positive and negative. So fractions, how many of those? Oh, man, it's got to be so many of those, right? A ton of those. You can put upstairs all of the integers. You can put downstairs all of the integers, with the exception of zero. So you get a ton of numbers. How big is this infinity? Huh, it's just every bit as big as the integers, every bit as big as the naturally positive integers, and uh, but not any bigger. It's the same number. How can it be? I don't know, but I can prove it. So it's, man, how can you prove it? And it feels so wrong, but it is all right. Sometimes it's kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to make analogies here. And then there are the crazy infinities that are truly something else. Like if you start throwing in the, the, the so-called the real the numbers, the real numbers, that like pi or you know, this, uh, the numbers like pi or, or e and, uh, and the square root of 2, well, those, hey, man, that's a different infinity. And I can prove that. There is no way. This is a much bigger infinity. So the smaller infinity is bigger. People actually spend time working on these things. And man, it's fascinating. And you can prove the sizes of infinities. And I can tell you that infinities comes in many different shapes and sizes. Shapes is the wrong word. Even though the notion of a shape of infinity I like, we got to write poetry about that. <laughs> but the sizes of infinities change. So it's puzzlement and it's awe. Oh, that, 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 that is the emotion that brings to, to my mind. And then there is the notion of uh, uh, patterns. The notion of patterns, What's, what is intelligence? And I don't know what intelligence is, but it seems to me that it's got a lot to do with the recognition of patterns. And you know, there is a branch of mathematics where, probably not branches of mathematics or branches of everything, pattern recognition is important, but in number theory, in number theory is really, really cool. And in number theory, of course, you look at properties of, uh, of numbers in many ways. And, uh, and so there you actually do calculations sometimes. And it's, 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 it's fun. And the way to, to find a way to the, your compass out of the, the, to get out of the forest, if you will, is the recognition of patterns. And those become theorems and becomes, become statements that are scientific statements or mathematical Correct, mathematically correct statements. And to me, uh, calculations that we started with uh, also play with emotions in different ways. You know, I, I started out by saying math is a lot more than calculations, certainly true. But you know, I, I don't mean to, 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 to play down the emotional importance of calculations too. Let me give you one example. 
So uh, my daughter Chiara, very gifted artist. My daughter Chiara, whenever she's got, especially when she was a younger kid, whenever she was in pain because of stress or anxiety, all these things that happen to, to, to everybody, uh, to her, a way to, to feel better, to gain control over her anxiety or pain or grief, was to uh, color inside of the lines. You know, they get these coloring books. And she's an incredibly gifted and talented uh, no, artist. She came very creative. She stuff they come out of her no, pencil. It's, it's incredible. But in that case, when it comes to fighting inner pain, if you will, or keeping it under control, it wasn't creativity. It was no color right inside of the lines and make it work right. So there is some technique, there is some repetition that comes to the rescue there. And my equivalent of that, I have no artistic ability whatsoever. And I have this reaction of fear when I actually have to, to, to draw even a stick figure, like what you were saying for yourself with math. To me, it's you know, the visual arts or anything that I have to use my hands for, I just am terrified. And, but uh, it's, uh, you know, for calculations can be fun. I mean, to me, calculations says it's, it's, uh, it's relaxing. I do uh, math calculations and math quizzes every day. And that's how I start my day many times, as many times as I can. And I don't sleep much. I sleep just two, three hours a night, sometimes four or five hours a night when I'm sleeping long. And sometimes, I want to find a way to get some initial tranquility. And my ticket to get there most of the times is mental math. And mm. they, you may say that it is mental <laughs> in more ways than one, but it's mental math. And let me give an example, if I may. So uh, to me, the equivalent of Chiara you know, drawing and keeping inside of the lines, uh, I like to take the squares of numbers. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> Okay, let me try with a couple that, that, that we all know. Four squared is 16. Okay, nine is 81. Remember multiplication tables. Some people even remember 12 is 144. Okay, that's the end of the multiplication tables. But, you know, 16 is 256, and 31 is 961, and I don't know, 42 is 1664. And, you know, this is not memorized. These are things that you get patterns and you and you kind of walk down that path with your head and your head redoes it every time and it's soothing. It aligns your neurons and you don't have to think about it. You kind of launch it and uh, most of the times the brain kind of knows how to do this and it sticks someplace and it's redone every time but it's redone quicker and it's got a soothing potential. And, and then the brain identifies ways to do that. And sometimes it even tell you how it does it. It's a funny conversation. So, okay, some of them you get, I kind of know by heart. Said 12 is 144 and 17 is 289. Good, so you gotta have a few basics. And then you come say to 21 and 21 is 241. Why, how do you get there? Well, you know, one way, one easy way to do that, you look at the number prior, that's 20. You square it is 400. Anybody can square 20, it's 400. 
Well, if you want to know the square of the next number, which is 21, you add the number and the number comes after that. So 20 squared is 400, and then you add 20 and you add 21. So it's 41, 441, easy. So, you know, and uh, you can do that also in reverse. You can do that, for instance, you want to do 29. Okay, 29 is kind of tricky, but 30 is easy, you get 900, and then you take away 30 and 29, which is 59, so you get 141. So that's a kind of easy way to do that. You're laughing. Yeah. Or no, by I, some of them, you can actually do it differently. Think of 55. I'm just picking up numbers here. 55 is easy because it's 11 times 5. So if you want to square 55, you do 11 times 11, 121, times 5, 605, times 5, 3,025. Boom, you got it. And 56 from 320, for 3,025, you add 55 and 56, which is 121. On top of 325, you see how that works. You put the pieces together. This is basics. I was a little kid, you know, whenever I would take the bus and go places, boring a sec. My challenge was always, before I get there, can I do all of the squares of all the numbers up to 100 in my head before I get to bus stop uh, number whatever it is when I got to get off and go to school. And that was my way to kind of, you know, to kind of to, to do something. And that stayed with me. Now I know the squares of the two-digit numbers. They come quick. My mind can do them quick. So I can, we can do the next step. How about we do things like uh, three-digit numbers in the hundreds, like 321. How do you do that? Just to pick one. Remember, we just did 21 is 441. Well, 300 is 90,000. We got 90,441 if you put them together. But remember, a plus b squared is a squared plus b squared plus 2 times ab. And then it becomes a problem of putting things in the right columns in your head. So you, got, you start with 2 times ab, boom, and then you put all of the pieces together. With three digits, it's not that difficult. Four digits gets a bit trickier. So the typical picture that you see when, when my wife is desperate, my lovely wife Paula is desperate, she says, can you please go to sleep? Because I don't sleep much. <laughs> say, can you please go to sleep? And then my please, honey, can you please give me a four-digit number? And she will give me like 5623, 5923, and then I say, okay, thank you, honey. And then, and then, you know, she tries to go to sleep and I start thinking, and it may take two, three minutes, sometimes five minutes. And then I tell her, well, it's 25 million and this and that and the other. And she says, oh, do you want me to write it down? And she says, please do, honey. So we'll check tomorrow. So this is the typical night in the Ferrari's household. <laughs> it sounds to me like scales in, in music. I, I, one of the reasons I was laughing is because it kind of clicked for me what you were doing is that, you know, you go over the scales and over the scales and over the scales and you have to make your fingers or you you, yeah. you make them move for a while and you have to imagine where's it go next and you're clunky and it's kind of yeah. not making sense. But all of a sudden you start flying a bit, you start incorporating those and you start mixing and interweaving different scales and it becomes a, a beautiful song. Yes. And that to me, it, it I just... I don't know, this is maybe dense of me, but I just really got the fact that it, I, I, I didn't know why I did better on the SAT. I did better on mathematics. <laughs> I never understood why. Here even, we go. even though I said I couldn't stand, but I did better on it. And I, yeah. But I'm a musician. I've been playing music since I was seven. 
Yeah. And so there's something intuitive about that, but I've never had the insight that that just clicked. Thanks. Good. I'm glad it clicked. And so to me, but going exactly the way you're going. So when we do these things as musicians, uh, and we, you know, there are times uh, that you know, if I hear a song in my head uh, that I want to play, you know, some people have perfect pitch and they can just tell you the notes, and I can't. But if I look at my hands. My hands kind of know what the notes are that I would play on the saxophone. So there is this notion of muscle memory, as people call it, with all these variations, which I think is is, is real. And you know it, you've seen right. it, you play the scales and your muscles, as people use the expression, your muscles remember how to do this. What muscles we got in the brain? I don't know, my neurons got biceps? <laughs> well, not, not much of a bicep, to, to, to be honest with you. But you know, they got myelinated. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> they got myelinic muscles, super biceps. I saw, Smooth and fast. Yeah, so that is, that is so funny. And so it's uh, so these are these are mysteries. There are mysteries yeah. that are that are, I think, very attractive and they can bring out a lot of emotions. I remember once probably the most important theorem that I actually worked on was probably the first one I did. Math is a sport for the young men and the young woman, they say. You know, you say that you make your biggest accomplishments by age 30. And uh, many actually before. You know, that's why the equivalent to the Nobel Prize in mathematics is called it the Field Medal. is restricted to people that are 30 or younger, because after that, hey, the neurons have lost some of, some of those biceps, I think, right? Especially the creative biceps. And so the first, first piece of work that I did was in applied math, but it was had a theoretical approach. And this involved uh, this fascinating notion. There was this, this big animal, mathematical animal, that I needed to find a way to tame so that I could get predictions on the behavior of certain materials, also known as polycrystalline materials, materials that are made of crystals that have grain, crystal grains that have different orientations, but they are made of the same substance. So there was a way to kind of make a prediction for what the overall behavior would be of these things, based from starting from the properties of each crystal and a knowledge of the distributions, of the orientations. So you, you do some essentially some big time averaging type of stuff, complicated for properties that have also, also different mathematical uh, you know, the, the expressions for them, they're called tensors. And, uh, and uh, you know, so the problem is that if you write the formalism that comes from the theory, you end up with things that are incredible summations of infinite sequences of numbers in multiple dimensions. So I'm not going to spend infinity time calculating the darn things. And it turns out that the terms that actually contribute, you can tell how many of those there are. So you only need to go a certain number of steps out of your way after that, buddy, it's all zeros. As very, so you come back from infinity, from multiple infinities, you come back using the power of an analytical approach. And that, that, was, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. So that gave me, that, 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 was, that was a feeling of elation. When, Do you have fun doing that? I mean, yeah, while you're doing it. Yeah, that, <laughs> was, that was fun. That was over Christmas. It was my first... Uh, I'd never done research before, and uh, I was writing essentially my, my, my senior thesis. I was at Berkeley. Enough. I was very surprised that I was at Berkeley because I come from a very blue-collar family. Nobody had ever been to college. 
I had pretty mediocre grades in my college in Italy after failing a couple of careers. Turns out that the only thing I could do was go to college. I didn't have the confidence that I thought that I could actually do something with it. Next thing you know, I find myself in Berkeley because somebody was crazy enough to take a chance on me. And over Christmas, Christmas break, I said, man, I got to finish up this research project here because you know, I don't have money. I need to close this. And you know, who knows uh, that if I don't get it done, this dream of getting a college education in Berkeley is going to come to a crashing halt. So it was, uh, I just got married. It was uh, a few weeks of very, very intense work during break. And at the end, boom, it all came out. I finished and I turned it over to my professor. And I said, I'm done. Can I go home now? <laughs> he said, and he, and he, I think he was pleased. And, uh, and so we actually published it. It was my first publication. How old were you? Oh, I, I am a very late bloomer. As a matter of fact, I ain't bloom yet. And uh, so that I was like 26. No, I, I got, uh, I finished my undergraduate degree. I tell my kids all the time. I finished my undergraduate degree at age 26. That's when I graduated. And then I, and then I got, I had to go faster after that. And I got married and I had to take care of things. So I got a super fast PhD at Berkeley. And I started out, now I am coming into the second part of the things I wanted yes. to talk to you about, the phases of my career, if you will, is that, if that's okay with you. It is. I, I'm still stuck on the idea of a super fast PhD. Five you, semesters from you, undergrad. You, in, in, in engineering, right? Is engineering. It? Yeah. It was, yeah. My wife is going to hear this and get a little red-faced because I was on the uh, slow track of the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a slow track of everything else before that. So yeah. I think you got yeah, your we PhD yeah. <laughs> faster than me for sure. So uh, so now the story was that you know I, that, that I tried uh, coming from, uh, from a place up in the mountains of northern Italy in a part of the country had been torn by, by wars and the post-war bed bad things that happened after World War II. I mean, it was a very, very difficult place. So the the, the, the middle school that I went to, uh, the pretty much in elementary schools, everybody was kids of either steel mill workers or the military. All the military was piled up there because the communists were across the border, just 10 miles away from, from where we were, essentially. So nobody with any aspirations to go to college, any thought or any, any desire that I can think of. Nobody actually did. Very few went to high school. So that was that was the environment I grew up in. I mean, wonderful people, hardworking, honest, and nothing wrong. And I loved them to pieces. And I identify a lot with them. And, but you know, what that does to you is that when when the opportunities present themselves to go to college. You say, you're kidding me. Remember where I come from? It ain't never going to work. So is the notion of getting some confidence going? That little voice, yeah. The little voice said, you don't belong here. Man, this belongs to the smart kids. And they come from the smart families. And uh, so, uh, so I was very tentative with my notion of going to college. I had to fail a few careers before I got there. And I failed careers in the sports. I failed careers in music. And then there was nothing left. I said, okay, fine, I'll try this college gig and let's see what happens. And my father told me, are you sure you can get a job with a college degree? I said, dad, it's not like going to the freaking movies. That's what you go to college for. So, and God bless him. He didn't mean any harm. And right. he actually was supportive and everything. 
but it was concerned. Are you sure you can get a job with a college degree? So that's kind of the world I lived in. Yeah. So I find myself in Berkeley and these kids are super smart whiz kids and I'm terrified. And, uh, but, you know, if you come from a background like mine, I thought the only way you're going to have any, you're going to have a chance to do what my father said, you got to get a job sooner or later. It's kind of like the equivalent of cycling. You know, this morning I was watching a stage, a leg of the Giro d'Italia, and, and, and like the Tour de France, you know, these uh, great races when people go like demons on their bikes, and they all go together. And how do you know which ones are the real good ones? That's where the mountains come in. Oh, you start going uphill. <laughs> and some people are going to die, and some people are going to thrive and just take off, and they're just like they're demons. So I said, well, you know, I grew up in the mountains. I saw people try to do that. In the, in the, I said, uh, you know, to me, I don't know if I got anything that is of any quality. I don't know that I'm a good rider or not, metaphorically speaking. But uh, there is only one way to know. I'm going to try to climb myself a mountain <laughs> with a bike, and I'm going to make it a steeper mount mountain I can think of so that I can see if I got any talent or not. And if I got talent, then I get a job. And if I don't, I go back and try to fail some other careers. So I asked around, so what's the toughest degree you can get? <laughs> and people told me, astrophysics. I said, yeah. the heck is that? Yeah. Astronomy. I said, gastronomy is like when you go get food. <laughs> I said, that sounds good. I like to eat. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Okay, so, uh, so I said, I, Get me myself one of those. I found that one of our distinguished universities actually had a program. It was in Padova, which is where Galileo Galilei used to teach, very ancient and distinguished university. So I said, I'm going to sign, sign up for that. And I was very tentative and I was very scared, but I was going to try. At the same time, I had to support myself with the sports, with music, with what have you. You got a very interesting way of expressing your lack of confidence. Yeah. I got to tell you, man. This is... <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to find out quick. Bold. Yeah. Yeah. You got to yeah. find out quick. No, the notion of failing quick, I think, is a good strategy. If you got to fail, fail quick, and then you can do something else. Don't drag it out forever. So I said, I'm going to put myself to the test. So I tried with these things. Then I had a few things that actually happened. I got in a huge car accident and I was essentially in the hospital for a year, three brain surgeries, and I was in a coma. I had to rehabilitate into, a, and I, st I still see double. So I, it was difficult. That was smack in the middle of my first year of college. So it wasn't the easiest. And I can assure you that my grades completely sucked. And my confidence was really going down. And, uh, but I was still trying to make a living so that I could pay my college education, playing basketball, coaching basketball. I couldn't play anymore after the accident. And, uh, and one day, with my very mediocre grades, I showed up. I got fired by my team because my, the, 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 the head coach got fired. I was the assistant coach, and so they took up somebody else, and they came with their own group, and I got let go. And I was very depressed. So I stopped at uh, the university to sign up for my junior year. And the guy looked at me and he said, young man, I cannot sign you up for your junior year because you've taken a bunch of classes, and you've passed a bunch of classes with mediocre grades, but they didn't take any of the labs. 
said, sir, you know, I'm professional basketball coach. I'm sorry. I'm traveling around with the team. How am I going to take those labs? And he said, well, that's cool. But without those, I cannot sign you up for your junior year. I'm going to hold you back in your sophomore year. I'd already lost my job on the same day. And my girlfriend had broken up with me the previous week. I said, I don't like this. So I said, uh, sir, you got to think on your feet sometimes to survive, right? I said, sir, is there any other degree, any other degree program that I can switch to where all of the exams I've taken, all the classes I've passed will count and there is no lab? And he looked up and he said, math. And I said, math, that's what I always wanted to do. So I switched and that, that's how I got into math. And then I found that it's got some therapeutic properties and it brings out emotions. When they brought, got me to Berkeley and I did the things that I did, the professor at Berkeley said, I'm going to keep you here because I was doing good. I started doing my math for my senior thesis was the evolution of galaxies using relativistic cosmology. So the math for general relativity, that's pretty good math. I love that kind of math. And by the way, it's so cool, just to give a concept, going back to the excitement of math, the heart of general relativity is that space-time, you know, four-dimensional space-time, is curved. And the curvature is essentially the expression of energy and the presence of energy and mass. So the fact that forces and fluxes are expressed to a curvature a change of how distance is measured or plays out. That is so cool that I think it applies to everything there is. It's, it's, it's curvature. Oh, so that is, that is a fascinating topic. But it's beyond that. So I did my thinner thesis, and then this professor from came up and said, young man, I can get you money for your master's and your PhD. I said, really? He said, really? If you come and work with me, and I said, great. And he said, but there is a problem, he says. And he says, the problem is that uh, it is not in astronomy and astrophysics, not in gastronomy, and not in math. And I said, oh, yeah, what is it in? And he said, it's in mechanical engineering. And I said, mechanical engineering? That's what I always wanted to do. <laughs> and so I got my PhD in mechanical engineering. I still don't know how to screen a light bulb. I don't know which way the engine is in the car, but I got a PhD from one of the leading mechanical engineering programs in the world in five semesters. And that was quick. Boom. I got it. And then they came back from Berkeley. Usually at Berkeley, after you do that, and all the great universities, you know, the typical universities typically send you out for an experience postdocing or teaching someplace else before they even think about bringing you back. But they done pretty good. So they came back to me and they said, we think you should, you should stay here on the faculty right away. I said, yes. And they said, but there is a problem. It's not astronomy, it's not astrophysics, it's not mathematics, it's not mechanical engineering. I said, oh yeah, what is it? And they said, it's a split program you got the, the, the two-for-one type of thing, 50-50, in civil engineering and in material science and engineering. And I told them, guys, civil engineering, material science and engineering, 
That's what I always wanted to do. <laughs> and I got myself a job and I'd married Maria Luisa at that point. We had the three kids. I got my tenure professorship and life was perfect. It was looking up like, man, look what has happened. The little kid with a car accident that failed all sorts of careers from the mountains of Italy. Wow, I got this professorship at Berkeley. What can go wrong? Which is the beginning of the second phase of my career, where all of a sudden, it wasn't about finding the toughest climbs and beating everybody else. There's nothing wrong having that thing in your life. You, they had to establish yourself. There is a point you have to be become professionally competent and find a way to get a job, provide for your family. So there is nothing wrong with the notion that there is a phase of your life where you have to establish yourself professionally. But that's what all I was doing. I just wanted to win races. That was the thing. I wanted to win races. And then in the middle when everything looked perfect, uh, Maria Luisa, my young wife, got sick with cancer and died in a very, very painful uh, manner. And she died at age 32 and three small kids. And at that point, uh, my, my feeling was, uh, look, I've never done anything in medicine, never done anything in cancer. Last class I took in biology was, in, I think, in seventh grade. But what came natural was this notion that, but I know a lot of math and physics and astronomy and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And I've seen them apply to technologies and I learned some about some of these technologies, micro technologies, materials technologies. So I had this thought, perhaps uh, we can use these things to fight cancer. The doctors, with Maria Luisa's doctors were telling me that uh, it's very easy to kill cancer cells. All drugs that we have are successful. A drop of water kills cancer cells very effectively. No need for a fancy drug. The problem is getting the drug to go to the right places in the body and sparing the healthy cells, making sure that you kill all of the cancer cells and not too many of the healthy cells. It's a problem of mechanical transport of physical transport of the drug to the right places. And my thought was, guys, that's where math and engineering and all these things come in. That is how you can see with the eyes of your mind, how you can bypass and overcome all of these barriers that the body has inside of them. And that cancer is able to hijack to protect itself. That's where we're going to be coming in and we're going to make a difference. And so at that point, it all became, it's not climbing, it's not going up the toughest possible grade so that I can win a race, is how with what I have, phase two of life, with what I have, how can I be of service to those that need it the most? That was the big transformational step. And I don't care if I don't have the orthodox tools, I'll try to learn them, but I'm going to fight with what I got. In the fight against cancer, if you got a stick, bring a stick. If you got a rock, bring a rock. If you got a machine gun, bring a machine gun. We need everybody. And so that's how I started working in cancer. And in many ways, that's how nanomedicine started. Nanomedicine is a daughter of Maria Luisa, if you will. That in at least I saw that's it's, it's, 
her death was was uh, of course the, the the trigger for us to start looking at those crazy thoughts before anybody started looking at them or pretty much at the same time as a few other very few other labs and people were thinking about these type of things and if you think about that then a few years later fast forward the national cancer institute of the united states asked me to help them put together a national program which we did launched in 2005 10 year anniversary of uh, maria luisa's death pretty much launched in 2005 and many many drugs have come out of that and have been influenced by that and they've been used in hundreds of thousands perhaps millions of people worldwide and that is and that is great comfort it turns pain into meaning pain into hope and for for others which uh, i don't know that i know what the meaning of life is but it seems to me this got a lot to do with the idea of turning one, one's own pains into good things for others if you can do that you know meaning of life cannot be too far away from that i don't think regardless of what kind of philosophical or religious or whatever perspective one has i think that is something that is part of the inner core of how we are built as humans and so second phase of my career taught me well it's not about me it's not about career it's not about you know beating people in races it's about helping those that are in the greatest needs and if you have tools in hand that they can be helpful i'll tell you something buddy it's your freaking responsibility to do that is an ethical imperative you cannot run away from that and i don't care if it's hard if you're going to fail if you don't know what's going to happen if we are going to laugh at you because you're bringing crazy tools to the fight i don't care if you believe it if you suspect you're never going to know for sure but if you suspect that what you have could be helpful it's your duty to do it and that changes life completely so that was the second phase of my life and i spent it uh, of course uh, I also went to med school then at uh, starting at age 43 talk about but, but, uh, go back I'm, I'm, sure. yeah I'm curious about um Mary Louise's death and how because the the whole trajectory of your life is so you know you, again I go back to that earlier comment about a question of your confidence which uh, I, I don't know you just have some ability to persist uh, despite any of the height of the mountain and this here you are right i mean that shift that if we notice just in our conversation that shift it goes from this trajectory of complete ascent and then things turned into chaos and i i just wonder about that period of time for you what how you were carrying that around with you because you it you you've certainly flipped it into a meaning you found meaning into bringing all of your uh the the very diverse backgrounds that you've had and bringing them into a point that that I think is the definition of innovation you're able to really draw from very a lot of different wells but there's a I I'm just wondering what that time was like for you and how you moved through it given your obvious intellectual abilities but this is a different terrain yeah it's uh you know once the 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 switch flips 
I don't think you have much of a much control. You just gotta go. You just do it. You just one step after the other, and uh, you know it's a, it's a combination of being stubborn, being stupid, not knowing what you're getting into. It's a, it's a enthusiasm. It's it's a, I think is 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 not even the word because. Uh, Enthusiasm is like, uh, let's go have fun and do this. It's mm-hmm. going to work out all right. That's not, it's not how it felt. It felt like, man, I think I know something. It kind of reminds me now that we just spoke about, you know, how mathematicians you see sometimes, or musicians. You know, it kind of some sort, the neurons kind of started uh, making their little dances and they were all aligning and pointing and saying, this is what you got to do. And chances are, that you will miserably fail, but that is not important. That's what you gotta do. And then if I'm looking at this 20 years, almost 30 years later, you know, these fields have become fields that the world works on. The notion of uh, the physics of transport in cancer is called transport oncophysics now. You know, it's a, it's, it's a big thing. And nanomedicine is a huge thing. So it's uh, somehow this goes counter to what I said earlier, that sometimes all you can do is write a journal of the climb, but it didn't work in a mountain that perhaps didn't exist. Well, in this case, of course, uh, I think that there have been some impacts. There have been some impacts. Uh, and the fields of knowledge have started. Thousands of people have trained in this. And I think it is through them the good things, uh, the good thing will, will hopefully continue to happen. So that that has been a second phase. Of course, it requires to be serious about continuing to train and learn. And mm. so, as I was saying, I mean, I was at, at that point because of my research results, I'd become a full professor of medicine, a department chair, and whatever else. How old were your kids when you went to medical school? <laughs> All right, so I was 43 when I started med school. By the time I had uh, another miracle in my life, a major miracle, and I had uh, met, married uh, Paula, so my second marriage. And with Paula, we had another set of twins. So we married Luisa, we had three kids, a boy and twin girls, and with Paula, 12 months later, she has twins. 12 months after we get married, she has twins. So they used to call her the zero to five lady <laughs> for a good reason. You think about the sense of humor that the great Lord has. This is, uh, there is no genetic link. There is no genetic link. Some people sometimes say, well, it's you. No, it's not me. It's twins, it's mother's side. First are identical, the second are fraternal. So it's got nothing to do with me. It's just that the Lord has this unbelievable sense of humor. And you know, when we did the ultrasound, when Paula did the ultrasounds, and I kind of felt, I, I kind of had the feeling that it was going to be twins. And of course, nobody believes in male intuition. There is no such a word. Female intuition. Yes, we'll go for it. <laughs> Us? Are you kidding me? Us guys? No. I said, I think it's going to be twins. And nobody believed me. And then, uh, and then, of course, we are looking at a little TV screen during the ultrasounds, and you get the little foot and the little thing and the little head and the other little head. 
And I went, touchdown, Jesus. <laughs> and of course, and of course, Paula's jaw dropped to the floor. And uh, that was so fun. So we get another set of twins. But to answer your question, when I went to med school, so I was uh, 43. And so that would have put us into year 2001, 2002. And uh, so, uh, so the kids were small. Huh? So, so, mm. so the kids were small. Giacomo was uh, 13 and Kim and Chiara were 11. So you can imagine, Ilaria and Federica were little kids, preschoolers. And so we would do this Saturday studies, study, everybody doing homework on Saturday afternoons. And Paola was so wonderful. She was like the lion tamer. <laughs> and the six of us doing our homework, I was studying anatomy and trying to learn the name of all the little freaking bones. And the other kids were doing their their their, their homework and their, their drawings, Ilaria Federica, whatever it was. So that was tremendous. So that's the second phase of my, so I had to do this. And then I spent the following 15 years of my life becoming a hospital executive, continuing to do my research and running major research institutes and picking up management and executive skills as well. And that brings us to the third phase of my life, which is I've just taken retirement from my job at the Great Houston Methodist Hospital where I was for almost 10 years, president and CEO of the Research Institute, one of the best in the nation. And I was, until the day I retired, I was executive vice president of the hospital system. So it's a great job at a great institution. I learned a lot and hopefully I was able to serve in some useful capacities. And then, and then I took retirement. And the focus now is science. Remember, second phase is serving those in the greatest needs. But the focus was always on disease, on terminal diseases, and in particular on cancer. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that. Like I said, nothing wrong about the first phase, nothing wrong about the second phase. I'll come to Fibonacci in a second. The third phase is broader, in those in greatest needs. So I feel this... This, this, this compulsion almost, because I have tools of science in my hands of many different types of science. And I know that science can help address some of the great uh, problems in justice in the world. All of the problems in justice in the world have a science root. Well, you can think environment, you can think uh, clean water, access to healthcare. But access to, to the pursuit of happiness, you know, education, reaching into layers of society, the, for many communities in this country and in most other countries in the world are unreachable. So this whole notion of bringing everything I've done so far at this point to the service of creating academic programs for kids that are, that are, that are aging out of foster care. And with your great expertise, you very well know that most of them end up on the street, mm -hmm. homeless in prostitution and being abused and being in the pipeline of mass incarceration as uh, Rudy Erasmus calls it, Pastor Rudy. And you know, there is such an opportunity to have an impact there that that's what I'm dreaming up. That's what I want to focus on on my academic side of my life and the university side of my life. 
And, uh, and that's one class, but there is a bunch of other classes that I'm dreaming of, you know, kids that are already ending up in jail because of the traumas and the, and the pains that they've suffered when they were little kids. They ended up making the wrong decision at the last for a microsecond in very stressful circumstances, and they are screwed for life. Loving, right? My daughter Federica took me to, to, to visit inmates in high security prisons and to volunteer. And I've seen great talent among the inmates, and many of them great people with talents, with skills, with a desire to do things. They made a mistake at age 17. And I'm thinking, knowing my upbringing and theirs, I could have made a mistake just as easily as they did. And the difference between me and them is a microsecond, and the fact that they're probably a lot smarter than I am. And I go back to my plush big office, the size of a, an apartment or two in certain cities, on my big comfy chair and all the people that are working for me. And I'm thinking, I just left these guys in jail where they're going to be for the rest of their lives, where they enter at age 17. What's the difference between me and them? Opportunity, mentoring, luck, most of the times. And so that's what I'm focusing on, developing strategies for addressing those that are essentially inequalities is a problem of justice. And I think science can really help with that. Now, why did I mention Fibonacci? You know, so one, two, three phases of my life, Fibonacci was a great mathematician. Let's, let's close with the notion of, uh, of mathematics, if you will, and the emotions of mathematics. Fibonacci was a great mathematician, lived almost 1,000 years ago. He was from what is now Italy. Then there was no such a notion. He was from Pisa. And Fibonacci came up with this sequence of numbers. So you start with zero, then you get one. And from that point on, the next number is the sum of the two prior numbers. So zero, one, one. And then you get two because the sum of the prior one and one. And then you get, you see, three, then you get five. Five and three is eight. And then you get 13, then you get 21, you get 34. So that's how it progresses. And it actually creates a spiral of numbers that mimics the spiral of structures in biology, the spiral of life is the closest approximation to that. It's fascinating. You see it everywhere in nature, in biology, you see it everywhere. And why am I bringing up Fibonacci? Because every number in Fibonacci, in the sequence, every number is built by the prior two, by the prior two numbers. If you are a Fibonacci number, you can never forget where you come from. And the numbers that were before you is who you are right now. And who you are right now is the step for where you're gonna be as your next number. So that continuity, that harmony that comes out of that and that progression that comes out of that, that's how I think of my career. Phase one and phase two were necessary for phase three. Phase three is built on phase one or phase two. It is not a denial of one or the other. So I like uh, to think that people should think of themselves as uh, Fibonacci sequences. There is a great harmony that you keep, uh, mm -hmm. and there is a great evolution that you can go through and growth. Uh, and, uh, uh, but of course, you always do that with the right proportions to the prior number and to the prior experiences. 
that is how you develop a harmonious spiral that hopefully can get you places. And the only place that is worth getting to is serving others, serving those in needs. Thank you so much, John. Oh, Mauro, thanks a lot, man. That last, uh, that last thing clicked a lot. I'm grateful, man. Thank you. Thank you.